Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. Today, my guest is a philosopher named Dr. Gwen Bradford. And this is one of those conversations I'm just proud to be a part of. It is a wonderful discussion with a wildly intelligent human being. But more than that, Gwen is a kind human being. She is a thoughtful human being. And I felt so fortunate to get to spend time with her and collect her thoughts about wildly consequential topics that she spent a lifetime studying. This is one of those conversations that I walked away from feeling gratitude, feeling grateful for having the opportunity to sit down and have an important conversation like this, have a meaningful conversation like this. Gwen is an associate professor of philosophy and the director of graduate studies at Rice University, where she spends her time studying and teaching and writing about all kinds of compelling concepts and ideas, but we spend the bulk of our time today exploring one in particular. That's achievement. Gwen has spent much of her career studying achievement, and she even wrote a book about achievement titled, what else? Achievement, which I will say is available on Amazon and wherever you buy books, and I'll make sure to link to in the show notes. But Gwen attempts to answer fundamental questions that have been overlooked for centuries in philosophy. Questions like, what makes an achievement an achievement? And what makes an achievement valuable? She's also done a lot of work on what I think is the most beautiful part of this conversation, on how achievement relates to meaning in life. What achievements bring the most meaning to our lives? And I can't wait for you to hear that because I think her description of achievement in this context is unique. But I also think it's incredibly important for us all to hear. This is also a wide-ranging conversation that covers topics like Aristotle and what Aristotle calls the goal of being human. We take on why thought experiments that make us uncomfortable are important. And we even spend a little time speaking about whether or not our society would benefit from more of us thinking like philosophers. Spoiler alert, I certainly do. Gwen, I want to thank you for being a part of this. I sure hope this is the first of many conversations between us, and I can't say enough about how much I enjoyed spending a bit of time with you. And to all of you that are listening, if you enjoy what we do here on The Examined Athlete, if you enjoy this conversation between Gwen and I and think it's valuable, do me a favor, share it with one other person that you think will take something from it. Share it with one other person who you think will also think it's valuable. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gwen Bradford. You ready? I am so ready. All right. Well, <laughs> we are live, Gwen. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll just start by saying it was an absolute pleasure to prepare for this. Like, I do feel privileged to get it access to your thoughts in these articles. So just thank you so much for sending me articles and for agreeing to do this. Thank you. It's a thrill for me to find someone who's so interested in my work and you read my work. I mean, that's really, it's just, I can't tell you how exciting that well, I is. I think your work's meaningful. I think this is going to be a meaningful conversation, not just for me, but for listeners. I think we're going to cover some things that 
are important to everyone. I think achievement is probably right up there near the top uh, for most people. So I think it'll be a meaningful conversation. But I'll tell you where we're going to start. So we're sitting in my game room. To my left, your right, is a big sign that says happiness with a capital letter H. And the reason for that sign is because I believe happiness is life's top line goal. But that's not my thought. As you know, I took that directly from one of your favorite philosophers, one of my favorite philosophers, Aristotle, who says that the goal of being human is happiness, or at least you're going to translate that for us a little bit. So we're going to start there because I think we're going to come back to this principle probably a couple of times. Explain to us what Aristotle means and take a deep dive on what he means when he tells us happiness is the goal of being human. Well, this is just such such a wonderful starting point. I should say, so I'm not I'm not an Aristotle scholar. However, I've read the Nicomachean Ethics many times, and it's definitely a key, key text for me as a person and as a philosopher. So the starting point there, Aristotle's starting point, as you say, is that the point, as it were, of being a human being is to be happy. That's what we seek out in life. But by happiness, Aristotle doesn't just mean the sort of, you know, fluffy passing happiness of a good mood. The ancient Greek word eudaimonia is sometimes translated as happiness, but often translators will reach for some other term that captures something closer to the richer idea that Aristotle and I should say also the other ancient Greek philosophers and contemporary philosophers have in mind, which is something more like flourishing. Or some will say something like living successfully. They don't mean financially successfully necessarily, but more sort of doing it right, doing life right, flourishing as a human being. For Aristotle, what that amounts to is having the features that equip us, the core human features that equip us to do the human thing, the human function well. And for Aristotle, what that is is largely being a rational creature. So what are the features that enable you to do rational things well? So those are the virtues. For Aristotle, happiness or flourishing is the activity of the virtuous soul or the virtuous mind. Now here, rationality isn't just theoretical rationality, thinking and knowledge. That's a big part of it. It also includes practical rationality. So the rationality of taking action, making plans, and responding to reasons. So doing all of those things well is what it is to flourish as a human being or to be happy. To pursue virtues, correct? So kindness, courage, you name it. Pursuing virtues is how he tells us to achieve happiness. I love the subtle point that you made that happiness in his definition is not a hedonistic pursuit. It's not pleasure, meaning eating potato chips and watching Netflix may make you happy in some sense, may give you pleasure, but that doesn't fit his definition. He defines happiness as, as you said, it I think is a better word, but it's not what is on the wall is, is flourishing. But he points out in my eyes quite compellingly that we're at our best when pursuing these virtues, when we're flourishing, but not just all out pursuit. He talks about a balance that I believe he never actually said this term or wrote this term, but what's called the golden mean. So we should pursue balance. Explain to us what the golden mean is and how it applies to becoming our best self. Yes. Isn't it wonderful? I love this uh, way of looking at things. 
according to Aristotle, what virtues are, I guess you could say what Aristotle notices is characteristic of virtues, is that virtues are a state of character. So it's something that's holistic and about your whole, your whole being, so about your thoughts, but also your feelings and your actions. And all the virtues are a mean between two extremes. So here we have, it's the arithmetical mean, <laughs> so the mathematical mean, like the average, as it were, between two extremes of excess or deficiency on the other hand. So an example would say be courage. So the virtue of courage, Aristotle points out, is a mean between two extremes on the one hand, between the extreme of cowardice, but also something like rashness. So you can have a sort of excess of eagerness for dangerous activity that would make you rash or an sort of insufficient amount of eagerness for dangerous activity and that would make you cowardly. But the courageous person is somewhere between these two extremes. They're, they know exactly what kinds of dangers are the sort that are worth pursuing, that are worth risking their lives for. So they have the sort of right balance between these two extremes of cowardice and rashness. And Aristotle goes through the other virtues, pointing out that all of the characteristically virtuous states of character are ones that are that sit between two extremes. So other, including, inter there's some interesting ones here. For example, anger. So Aristotle thinks that it's virtuous to get angry about the right things in the right way at the right time. And you might think anger is a sort of vice, but of course, it's only excess of anger, something like irascibility. But being appropriately angry, something like righteous indignation, one might say, is a virtue. And then, of course, not being angry about anything, sort of being overly passive, is also a, a vice to Aristotle. I love it. That's why I have you here, saying it better than I ever could. But what's so magical to me about the golden mean and why I think it's going to tie in again and again to our conversation is this never-ending pursuit. Because as listeners would probably figure out from listening to you, there's no such thing as mastering the golden mean. It is a lifelong pursuit. It is a commitment to constant learning and, and a commitment to humility in my eyes because you have an understanding that I'm never going to be there. And so being your best human is a commitment to constant learning constant humility, which is what I really love. And I think we'll tie in nicely to to where we're headed today. But before we get there, I'm going to ask you to speak in a general sense about philosophy. I want to start with a really broad question. What is philosophy and what is a philosopher? Well, that's a great question. And I would love to know the answer. I think <laughs> if you if you ask five different philosophers, you will get five. Maybe different I should say in answers. your words, yeah. what is a philosopher? <laughs> What philosophy is, is really inquiry. I guess I should say it comes the etymology is the love of wisdom from the ancient Greek word, philo, sophia. But broadly, in what philosophy amounts to is inquiry into the most fundamental questions about all of reality and all of human life, including the best way to live. And it's not just inquiry into those questions, but also it includes what's, I think, characteristic of philosophy, is that we then try to answer those questions in a clear, straightforward, and systematic way using primarily reason. And that's what's distinctive, I think, about philosophy, especially now, the way that philosophy is in academia, what distinguishes philosophy as a discipline 
is that it's using the tools of reason to try to answer as best we can these fundamental questions in a clear, systematic way. Well, to someone who may think that pursuit is completely academic, why would you say a philosopher's role in society is important? That's a great question. I mean, I think what I just said, of course, I sort of characterized it in part as as an academic discipline. But I think what I also, you know, the description that I gave is something anybody can do. I think you do it, that's for sure. Try to answer these fundamental questions in systematic ways, asking questions, looking for answers. That's really philosophy. So in, in some sense, anybody, everybody can be a philosopher and sometimes is one. So that's a sort of, you know, maybe philosopher. I would argue should be one, should be I one. Just I just love that. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in a practical sense too, there are fundamental questions. One of the things I just listened to last week was a conversation on AI and the idea that as we give more tasks and decisions to computers, eventually we're going to give questions of morality over to computers. And then the people that should be determining the code that goes into these algorithms should not be computer programmers or engineers. They should be philosophers. So in a very practical sense, you can see how it makes sense. But I agree with you. I think to flourish, to go back to that term, requires some sort of self-examination. I couldn't agree more. And indeed, a lot of these tech companies are looking for people with philosophy PhDs to hire to help them help them with this. Really? I didn't yes. know it was already going on. I oh, thought this was kind yes. of a, okay. No, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big deal. I mean, I, I, in fact, wish that they looked even more and would hire even more philosophers. I mean, I should say, though, philosophers are generally better at asking questions than at providing answers. You know, it's part of the tradition. We've got we to gotta uphold that part. <laughs> Nevertheless, you know, it's certainly, that is a sort of fruitful role for philosophers in society, which is knowing how to ask those kinds of questions, how to even begin to solve those kinds of problems. And I think also activating what I've come to think of as the moral imagination. I think if once you spend, you know, more or less all day, every day for several years thinking about moral problems and moral philosophy systematically and, you know, reading these difficult texts and learning how to really look under every rock for moral problems, you really get good at anticipating what kinds of moral problems might arise down the line. So somebody who's a philosopher has a skill set that they can bring to those kinds of jobs. So that that's to answer your other question about what's a, a role for philosophers in society. It can include it can include things like that. Well as this conversation matures, we're gonna get into many areas where I think philosophy belongs at the forefront of society for sure. And I think as they hear you describe your research around achievement, they'll see how it applies to everyone. So again, I've mentioned it a couple of times. You've spent quite a bit of time studying achievement. You've wrote a book on it, which we'll make sure and link to in the show notes. But at some point in your career, I was shocked by this, Gwen. You say that for 2,000 years, it's been acknowledged that achievement was significant, but no one bothered to look at what is achievement or why is it valuable, which shocked me. I'm going, really? 2,000-year pursuit, and that never came up. So you've focused a lot of time on those two questions, and let's start with the first one. What makes an achievement an achievement? So I thought it was strange, too, that nobody had really thought to look at this in a systematic way. 
So what makes something an achievement? Well, I think a lot of people, at the first pass run at what an achievement is, many people are inclined to think that achievements bring about something great in the world, like curing cancer. That would be an achievement. Or, I don't know, making a lot of money. <laughs> that's an achievement. So you bring about some outcome that's sort of impressive. But once you start to think about more and more examples, it becomes clear that some of our most paradigmatic achievements don't bring about anything at all. They sort of result in absolutely nothing. So running a marathon, climbing a mountain, there's really no outcome beyond their own undertaking that's worth much of anything at all. I mean, what do you get when you run a marathon? You get 26.2 miles away from where you started. Actually, you... Uh, you get yeah. you get a medal. You get a you get a medal. That's right. <laughs> Good for you, by the way. That's an impressive. Those collection. are my wives' medals. Oh, but I, to you, well, to you listening, I'm pointing at my wives' medals who are hanging on the wall. I've never run a marathon and never will. But anyways, congrats to her. Yeah, but nothing. There's no product. It's all intrinsic that's or internal. Right. That's right. You might say, well, you know, you you get a runner's high or you get some health benefits, but of course. You don't have to get either of those things to make it the case that you've run a marathon and it's an achievement. So for many paradigmatic achievements, there's no separate product that's worth anything at all. So what is it then that achievements have in common that characterizes them? Well, then once we start to consider more and more examples, climbing a mountain, running a marathon, maybe other things like learning to drive or learning how to bake a cake or learning a new language... They all seem to have in common some features. So here's how we do some philosophy. We look at what the common features are and see if we can develop a theory of what's in common. So what stood out for me as I was thinking about this is that achievements are characterized by being difficult. Take away difficulty and something that would have been an achievement isn't one. Add difficulty and something that wasn't an achievement becomes one. So tying my shoes in ordinary circumstances, is not an achievement for me. But if I, for example, lost the use of one hand, then it would be an achievement. Extremely difficult to tie your shoes when you can only use one hand. So difficulty seems to be sort of central characterizing feature of achievement. And I think it's the most noteworthy in a way, because we don't tend to think of difficulty as something that's a source of value. Usually we try to avoid doing <laughs> things that are excessively difficult in favor of doing something more efficiently. So it's interesting. In achievements, we seek out achievements. We think they're worthwhile. And yet they're characterized by difficulty. So I think that's the more interesting feature. I also argue in my account that there's another feature that's characteristic to all achievements, which is they have to also be sufficiently competent. Of course, there's a certain amount of luck that plays a role in just about every achievement. But you still have to, to put it casually, know what you're doing, <laughs> at least to some degree, in order for for something to there has to be some effort or intelligence involved to, to qualify. Is but that fair? Effort and intelligence, we might. Yes. So you need you need both of those things, intelligence or competence, at least of in the relevant way at the relevant time in order for something to be an achievement. So that's that's my theory of achievements. They're difficult and competent. Well, let's go to the next question. What makes an achievement valuable? Obviously, they need to be difficult. There needs to be some sort of competent process. But what takes an achievement and then turns it into a valuable achievement? Yeah, that's great. So since we've already got Aristotle on the table, we've got half of what we need to answer that question. So since we've already seen that achievements don't necessarily accomplish some great good 
outside of their own undertaking. And yet even those achievements seem to be valuable and worthwhile, like running a marathon or climbing a mountain. It stands to reason that the source of value of at least a typical achievement is in its process, is in the difficulty. Again, this is sort of surprising because in other contexts, we try to avoid doing difficult things. So what can we say about difficulty that might explain why it is, in spite of, in spite of it, it not being so good in other contexts, what might make it, in fact, something that's worth seeking out for its own sake? I think the answer can be given by an account that's very similar to the account that Aristotle gives of the best kind of human life. So drawing from an Aristotelian account of flourishing, so the idea here is that to flourish is to develop to the highest extent possible the central core characteristics of being a human being. That includes, as we've already noted, our rationality, our capacity for knowing things and making plans. But how does that explain difficulty? Well, what I think is that Aristotle is kind of missing this other feature that's that's special about being a human being is that we have a capacity, as it were, basically just to do difficult things. We have a capacity to exert effort. We could call it the will, say. So if having a will, a capacity to exert effort and do difficult things, is a core feature that's a characteristic of being a human being, and if developing and exercising the core features of human beings just is what it is to live a good life as a human being, then that means that exercising this capacity, exercising our will, is part of what it is to flourish as a human being. So every time we do something that's difficult, we're exercising our will, and that just is a little part of what it is to flourish as a human. Part of what it is to be our best self includes taking on challenging tasks, difficult tasks, because it develops us as a human being. It brings out the best in us. It is what it is to be an excellent human being. Well, let's let's linger on difficulty a, a bit, the value in difficulty, because one of the things that you point out in one of your papers is the paradox of difficulty. You write, and I'm quoting from your article, if great achievements are characterized by difficulty and greater achievements constitute greater increases in well-being, then the very best lives will be very difficult. So if difficulty is necessary for a worthwhile life, yet difficulty makes for unpleasantness, it seems to me that maybe we should be reframing difficulty or reframing unpleasantness. So how would you advise us to think about difficulty or frame difficulty in our minds? Yeah, and that's great. And let me tell you this... um, This point that I make here comes back to uh, haunt me from time to time when I find myself, you know, bogged down with more more difficult tasks than I than I wish I had. So it's sort of cold comfort that I've all, that I've argued in print that difficulty makes for a flourishing. I life. must be living a great life <laughs> yeah. if life is difficult. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so there there's there's a lot of nuance here. Like pretty much anything that's interesting, there's more than meets the eye, and there's of course more to life than just difficulty that matters. So what we have here is this comparative question is how great a good is difficulty in contrast to these other putative goods and bads like pleasure and unpleasantness. So one thing we might say, so yeah, it's typically true that doing difficult things is unpleasant or even painful and seems if anything is an intrinsic bad, it would be pain. I think that's probably true. But Since difficulty is a good, it might be the case that enough difficulty 
is good enough that it outweighs the badness of pain. So it depends on the context, of course, depends on the magnitude of the pain and whose it is and what else is going on. But actually running a marathon is a wonderful example of this because it's extremely painful. The pain of exertion, putting aside injury, just the pain of exertion is, can be excruciating. And so if the only thing that mattered were pleasure and pain, then you know, running a marathon would never be worth it. But the difficulty, it seems, the good of difficulty in this case, presumably most cases, outweighs the badness of the unpleasantness. Now, that's not to say that it will in every case, which is how we can explain this sort of paradox, why it's not the case that you should, after listening to me uh, go on about the great good of difficulty, nobody should go around making their life more difficult, because of course there are other things that also matter. If something's excessively difficult so that it's causing way too much pain or it's sort of clouding your life in such a way that it makes impossible access to other goods, then, of course, it's not worth it. So that's why typically it makes sense to choose a more efficient way to do a lot of things. And it's not like we should start, you know, get rid of your washing machine and like start, you know, using like a scrub board or something. I mean, it'd be an achievement, but I could probably find better things to do with your time and effort. Well, and I think the way you framed it in, in your article was that it should be thought of as effort or the development of the willpower you were talking about earlier. And I think that's that great tie-in to our original conversation about Aristotle is what's important to remember is that doing difficult things is the route to flourishing. And we can't become our best selves without taking on challenge, without being uncomfortable, which I think is the point. These challenging pursuits lead to our best lives we don't find purpose in my example from earlier eating potato chips and watching netflix although that would be great if we did the things that matter in the society at least for me are difficult and i think that's the point there and so exactly yes yes well i want to move just slightly to achievement and its relationship to meaning in life So here's another quote from your article. You say, in many discussions of meaning in life, achievement or something very much like it is a central element playing a key role in the account of meaning. And so I'm a realist and it seems pretty intuitive to me that achievement is necessary for meaning. If we go through life and achieve nothing, it's going to be very difficult to feel like we had much meaning in our life. However, Here's what I want to ask you about. Everything I think I know about meaning and value tells me not to base my value or my meaning on achievement. It seems like pegging my value to achievement will eventually negatively affect my well-being. So my question is, how does life's meaning coming as a result of achievement affect overall well-being? Oh, okay. Wow. There's so much there's so much there. So can, can you can you say more actually? Say more about why Tell me more about why you think that achievement would not be a good source of meaning. Well, let me change your phrase in there a little bit. I think pegging the meaning of my life or the value in my life to achievement is a very dangerous game. When I think of achievement, and I think when most people think of achievement, they think of accomplishing a goal, like you mentioned earlier. Selling a business for a lot of money, executing a stock transaction, hitting a home run. I think that's how we think of achievement. And pegging my value to achievements that are largely outside of my control seems like a losing game. And it's one that, though my life has been quite charmed, I have lost at that game before, where I've pegged my value to 
financial outcomes and then something goes wrong and your well-being is affected negatively. So that's my thought process there in a very verbose way of saying it. That's wonderful. I thought perhaps that was what what you had in mind. I think, yeah, so so there's a lot of ways to come at this. I think to be sure, if we pack a lot of our own our own sense of self-worth and the source of where we find meaning in our lives or what we find to be sort of to generate for us a sense of fulfillment in individual discrete achievements sort of with specific outcomes, it can, it can lead to a lot of disappointment and heartbreak in part because of course the role that luck plays just as you, just as you say, if what matters to you is not so much achievement, but the successful attainment of a particular goal, which can be different from achievement, (laughs) then that's sort of hanging a lot of how you feel about yourself in your life on something that's very fragile. So you don't necessarily have a lot of control over it. It's very, it's risky. It's a risky bet. A further interesting puzzle is also that, um, and, and for sure, this is exactly this fascinating passage from John Stuart Mill's autobiography. Get into that. Use yes, that to describe. Yes. Tell us tell us more about John Stuart Mill and the Mill crisis and then maybe even self-propagating goals. So maybe maybe that's where you're heading is my definition <laughs> yes. of achievement is poor, which I'm happy to admit. Go for it. Well, I, not not the definition so much, but sort of the kinds of projects that we undertake can be I think a rich source of meaning. So he, here's a here's a wonderful example from the history of philosophy. So John Stuart Mill, one of the most important philosophers in, I guess, at least in the in the Western tradition, a, a British philosopher from the 19th century. He wrote, he had a fascinating life. And he was, all, in addition to being a, being a philosopher who wrote about moral philosophy, um, he also had really well-informed vision for how society could also improve in light of his theories. Wonderful. All of social change, including expanding education opportunities for women and so on. And he was involved in making these changes happen. And he writes in his autobiography that one day he was thinking about all of these goals and all of these projects that he had in motion. And he thought to himself, if I could just snap my fingers right now and see all of these projects come to life in society, would that bring me sort of peace and deep gratification and a sense of meaningfulness? And he realizes, no, it wouldn't. I would not feel fulfilled. All of these things that I'm working for right now, if they were accomplished, would not bring me a feeling of satisfaction. After this is terrible, actually, he has a real breakdown. But so, so we might ask this, so what is the insight that he is that he's experiencing in this moment. Now, I think there's, we could read this a lot of ways, but I think at least one of the takeaways is that when we have projects that are meaningful in our lives, that are valuable, worthwhile projects, it turns out it's not necessarily the completion of the projects that matters, but the pursuit, engaging in the activity in the process itself that's challenging. There's something valuable just about that. Now, of course, as I've just explained in my account of achievements, that's exactly what I say matters about achievement. The, the, what matters, what's important about achievements is the challenge. It's doing something difficult for its own sake. And so Mill is also pointing out that kind of in a way, like the more is a better, not of course in the sort of gratuitive, endless Sisyphean sense, but if you have a project 
that's or this is my interpretation of what my takeaway of what we, we can learn from Mill. When we engage in projects that afford us continual renewing sources of ever-growing challenge, that's the most meaningful kind of project that we can engage in. That's the most meaningful kind of achievement. So I think when philosophers have had this insight that achievements are in some way important for meaning in life, I think this is the best kind of achievement for that. The kind of project that keeps expanding and has what I call a self-propagating goal, maybe not the most poetic way to put it. But what I mean by that is it has a kind of goal that when you start the project, you really don't know exactly what it is that the goal is. You kind of have an inkling, a sort of rough outline, and you kind of, you can't know really what the goal is until you start to get closer. And then once you get closer to that initial goal, not only does it come into focus, but new goals sprout up that you couldn't even have imagined before. It continues to be this unfolding source of renewing challenge. And I think that Many projects that we sort of naturally think of as good sources of a meaningful life have this structure, and they're sort of surprising ones. Now, I've gone on about this for a long time. Perhaps you, you have a question. Uh, I, I think this is the most beautiful aspect of your paper, so I encourage you to go on about it. I think if listeners take anything away from this conversation, which hopefully there will be a lot, is that achievements that can be the richest source of meaning in our life involve that continued pursuit. The way you put it is that the pursuit is a source of more significant meaningfulness than the completed accomplishment. And that is so funny because it comes up over and over and over again on these podcasts with great athletes and great business leaders. It's probably not said as poetic as you put it, but what came to my mind when I was reading your article in preparation for this was parenting. The pursuit of being a great father. It's never ending. There's no finish line. My father is downstairs right now watching my five-year-old. So you may think, well, he's raised Clay, and now Clay's talking philosophy with a Yale-educated philosopher that teaches at Rice. No, his job has continued evolving, and today it's watching his granddaughter is part of being a great father. It's this continued pursuit. So that's what jumped out to me as an example of the most meaningful achievement in my life is never going to end till the day I die. And it's being the father of these two little girls that are downstairs. And so I thought that was a beautiful sentiment. And to bring in the mill crisis where he realized that, that, hey, my most meaningful goals have no end, or I can't even imagining them having an end, talk about my daughters again, gave him great sadness. If raising of my daughters had an end a goal, I would feel great sadness. No, I, I want it to be a never-ending, continuous pursuit. So I, I love that point. Keep going if you have more. That's wonderful. That was exactly the kind of example that I was just about to reach for. And what I like about in exactly raising a family or, or having relationships with people seems to fit exactly this structure of the self-propagating goal in that you can't imagine at all. You, you have like... What goals do you have? I mean, new goals unfold every day. It sounds a bit artificial, of course, to talk about it as, as having goals, but you know, naturally there are. There are little plans and projects and aspirations that we have with our loved ones, and that's part of what it is to have a successful relationship. These things keep unfolding over time and new possibilities evolve that you couldn't even imagine at first. And of course, they're very effortful, <laughs> and that seems to be a significant part of it. And what I like so much about this is that 
when we think about achievement, just sort of outside of a context, being a parent doesn't really come, that's not the sort of, you know, American dream achievement. We think more of like financial success or something like that and making a lot of money. But it turns out that many, in fact, true bona fide achievements that are deeply, deeply valuable are not that kind of achievement. They're these other things like being a parent or having a good relationship or a good marriage. Those have all of those same structural features that make them the greatest, most valuable achievements in our lives. So I think that's a wonderful example. Yeah, we shouldn't be reductive when it comes to achievement. But you talk about why philosophy is important. This is why it's important. These realizations are important because I'm someone who certainly defined achievement by financial transactions for a very long time. And I think bringing these type of discussions into my life has been a very good thing. But I, I want to ask some questions about that. So I'd like to get your thoughts on a continued focus on finding meaning or purpose, because I'm going to bring up a bit of a, a heterodox point here to what I just said. It seems to me that constantly seeking meaning or greater purpose has actually been somewhat of a source of anxiety for me. And I'm not saying that I would trade my mind for one that's oblivious of those thoughts, but I'm not lost on the fact that if I was a person that never entertained meaning or never entertained greater purpose and was content eating potato chips and watching Netflix, I may be less anxious. I may be more content. So do you think a focus on achievement or meaning is a route to happiness and well-being? Yeah, it, that's a, a wonderful, a wonderful point and a, and a perennial one in philosophy that comes up in many contexts. It's sometimes called the paradox of hedonism when it comes up in the context of hedonism, where so hedonism being the view that the most important thing in life is pleasure. And so if you're focused on nothing but pleasure and having the most pleasurable experiences, that, of course, will take away from your ability to experience anything in a deeply pleasant way. And the same, I think, is true for meaningfulness. So if we're just focused very explicitly in our minds on finding meaning maximizing opportunities for meaning, it's going to make it harder for us to truly enrich our lives with meaning, whatever that may be. But what's the answer? How do we get out of that? Now, the hedonist has an easy answer. You simply sort of focus your attention on whatever it is that you're doing and it's and the pleasure that it brings rather than the, the task of getting more pleasure. But I think in one way, meaningfulness may be sort of isn't really susceptible to that, since if we think that part of what it is to flourish as a human being just is to ask the kinds of questions like, what makes for a meaningful life? And how can I make my life more meaningful? Then the very act of questioning about it, which isn't always pleasant, just as you say, is actually part of making your life more meaningful. Probably doesn't feel that way at the time, but meaning, of course, isn't about how it feels. It's about what's in fact happening and whether, whether you're flourishing. So the very act of looking for meaning is itself, maybe surprisingly, a source of flourishing and a source of meaning in life. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So for me, the lack of contentment and always thinking, is there something more? Is, is there a greater purpose for me? Has led to a lot of success, but it also brings in that underlying anxiety level if you're never content with where you are and I won't say I'm never content I'm certainly content with my family but I'd say in a business sense an athletic sense I would never 
consider myself content. It was never enough. There was always something more, which, like I said, I think helps in many ways, but I think it leads to an ambient level of anxiety that I'm not sure I'd, I'd wish that same mentality on my girls. So I think it's an interesting question. Well, I want to move on here to something that I found really fascinating, and that is the idea of evil achievements. Evil achievements takes on the question, do achievements require positive outcomes? And one of the questions you asked in one of the talks that I watched online was, was the Holocaust an achievement? And what occurred to me is that in so many circles, that question would immediately be dismissed. You know, why would we even entertain such a ridiculous question? But before we get to those questions, I want to linger on that question. I want to ask you, was the Holocaust an achievement? And why or why not? And I'll give you my answer. It was an easy answer for me, but you can tell me. Oh, I want to know what you think. (laughs) For me, it was an easy answer. Yes, it's an achievement. It doesn't make it a valuable achievement, but value for me does not affect whether or not it's an achievement. For me, I'm very much laying a foundation about the importance of separating is from ought. It is an achievement, but that doesn't make it a valuable achievement. Well, that's wonderful. It sounds like you've uh, you've read some of my work. <laughs> I've read a lot of your work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. And but to be fair, the minute you asked it, it was oh. it was apparent to me. Well, of course, it's achievement. I mean, it it doesn't have to be valuable to be an achievement. Well, I'm I'm, gl- I'm glad it seemed that way. So so to, so to sort of put it in context, where this comes up really in a way is as a sort of objection. So if my count of achievements as as we've heard so far is that they're difficult and competent and there's no condition that the outcome has any positive value so things like running a marathon has no positive outcome so then we sort of turn to this other thing of well could it have a bad outcome could you do something that's difficult and competent but results in something bad would that sort of prevent it from being an achievement if we say yes to that then somebody can raise an objection, which is, but wait a minute, that means you're going to end up saying that the absolutely most horrible thing that has happened, well, at least in the 20th century, if not all of human history, the Holocaust, you're going to end up saying that that was an achievement. Is that what you really want to say? So at first, it looks like an objection, because the sort of the natural reaction to that is to say, no, no one, we should, that couldn't possibly have been an achievement. But then, of course, once we start to look clearly and carefully at exactly what we mean by achievement, it turns out that, as we've seen, it's not necessarily the case that an achievement is good, just because I, I quite like the way you put it. So it's, it's a descriptive thing, not a prescriptive thing. So there could be achievements that are totally not worth doing at all, absolutely evil, and make the world a worse place. Holocaust is a great example of that. Definitely bad. Although I should point out, in a way, it was also a failure thank heavens, (laughs) what Hitler set out to do actually wasn't successful. Otherwise, the world would be a very different place. So in a sense, it wasn't an achievement looked at one way. But if we at least grant that there were some parts of it, I mean, it was clearly a very difficult undertaking. So it ends up coming out on my account that yes, it's an achievement. But just as you say, very evil, absolutely a bad one. I mean, perhaps I should say, so it's difficult to talk about and entertain just that point directly. We can sort of think about less evil achievements makes it seem perhaps more reasonable that we might want to say what or might want the theory to extend to make this claim about the Holocaust. So if you consider something like an art heist, this is my favorite example of this kind of thing, or 
a very elaborate practical joke. So something that involves a lot of planning and is competent, but has this bad outcome. So it's aimed at a bad end. I mean, if anybody's enjoyed an art heist movie, you're always rooting for the villains. So you might think, well, I mean, what they're doing is wrong, and maybe they shouldn't do it, and maybe overall the world is a worse place for it. But it, it certainly seems like it would be bizarrely restrictive if we were to say, oh, but it's not an achievement. So this allows us to sort of separate achievement from conclude. So there's a philosophical term for this. Achievement is not a thick concept. So thick concepts have their value built into them. So they're always good. So like cruelty, for example, always bad. That's a thick concept. So it turns out achievement is not thick in this way, according to my according to my account. Well, I think this question is important because, I mean, you threw in another example, but there are millions of difficult, uncomfortable questions that we need to develop that muscle of separating objectivity from subjectivity, of separating is from ought. So I want to get to the more interesting questions that I have, I think, around evil achievements. The reason I ask that question is because I think, again, that it's representative of so many questions that we're unable to take on in public discourse to our own detriment. And I believe wholeheartedly that our society has to find ways to engage in challenging conversations and think deeply about really uncomfortable ideas and topics. And so and the, the reason for that is I believe progress is found in the middle of those challenging conversations. And that's what I love about philosophy is you guys are taking them head on, polarizing topics, really difficult thought experiments. You're like, bring them on. I love that about philosophy. And so what I want to ask you, and then I'm happy to answer it too, because I'm passionate about this. Why is it important to ask difficult questions, engage in conversations, and think deeply about topics that make us uncomfortable? Oh, well, there are many reasons, many, many reasons why it's important. And I was delighted to read your essay about beautiful conversations as having just these features you made of my You made my month by saying it was Socratic. There couldn't have been a better oh, descriptor. Exactly. I, and I probably stole plenty of things directly from him, plagiarized, but keep going. <laughs> no, not at all. But it, it's, it's very much, I mean, I think, and the answer to why it matters and why it can be a, a source of, of course, we might mean many things by progress, but so at least progress in terms of learning often happens best when our ideas are challenged and through a dialectical back and forth in just the way that Socrates exemplifies in Plato's dialogues and in the tradition that we continue today in philosophy and ideally also just in the agora, as it were, in in the public domain, when we have a conversation and there's a back and forth. In fact, actually, thinking back on sort of the way that I've described some of my ideas and views throughout our conversation just now, you may have noticed that I would often sort of, you know, I sort of start with a starting point, you know, you know, here's here's something you might think about achievement, it has, you know, a valuable outcome. And then I said, but an objection to that would be, Things like marathons that don't have a so so what I've just done is sort of pose a sort of starting point theory and then point to an objection with that theory and then so if that's the way that we can move forward with our understanding about something as I don't know not achievement not that controversial <laughs> well, I guess it is kind of controversial but anyway but the point is that that's how we develop our understanding of any concept or issue is. You have an idea, an objection is posed, you sort of reframe the idea, 
perhaps object to that again. And you can do that in dialogue with somebody else or with many people or on your own, just reflecting. And it's a fantastic methodology for pushing ideas forward. We really just don't get our ideas as sharp unless they're tested with the strongest objections. And this is what the peer review process is all about. It's what happens in academic philosophy all the time. You know, you go and you give a lecture and then the Q&A is just basically people try to pepper you with the strongest objections that they have. It's a lot of fun. Or in a philosophy seminar, you know, you read something together and everybody tries to come up with objections, tries to give the best version of the author's argument. And this methodology, I think we believe, really sort of sharpens, gets us as close to like the best accounts of these various concepts that we're investigating as we can. Now, I think it shouldn't just be restricted to academic philosophy. It's, it's true of philosophy because that's all we do is we look at concepts and ideas. But in the public sphere, this is people are also talking about concepts and ideas and what kinds of policies should be in the world. People are also talking about art and literature and poetry, at least in this imaginary world that I'm conjuring right now. <laughs> and a back and forth of ideas. I mean, that's how else are you going to learn? And so I think that it's just extremely fruitful. Now, I, th I think there are concerns that the, the concerns that you have in mind are that sometimes people, you know, there's sort of third third rail issues or lightning rod issues or positions or turns of phrase that have sort of come to be kind of off limits or completely taboo in some way. And of course, it's a delicate balance, I think, between putting ideas to the test and considering positions from all angles and turning under, turning over every rock to see what's underneath it. And so it's a fine balance between that the sort of dialectical process and this sort of like, no holds barred, anything goes, everybody should be able to say whatever pops into their head and express absolutely every thought in, in every context. So there's a time and a place and a manner in which ideas are best expressed. And I think if we if we aren't if we aren't careful with the way in which we engage in this kind of dialogue, we can do more harm than good. And of course, there's plenty to say. There's plenty to say about this. I mean, well, that was the whole point of beautiful conversations. The essay I wrote, and I think one of the lines in there is I'm paraphrasing from memory is it's beautiful conversations not concerned with what we're discussing, but how we're discussing it. So a lot of the essay is how to structure a conversation around difficult ideas, challenging ideas in a way that prioritizes understanding, curiosity, progress, things like this. I certainly think that's an important thing. And the reason is because I think I mentioned it earlier that things that matter in society are difficult. And we are charged with taking on some of the most difficult, pressing ideas of our generation, whatever it may be. We have to get into really difficult areas and think deeply. And like you said, stand up against the best ideas of the other side and figure out which idea wins out. But my answer was twofold. While I think it's important to ask difficult questions like that and sit with them, even if they make you uncomfortable. Number one, I think thought experiments like that, Gwen, teach us to take on complexity. They teach us to hold multiple conflicting thoughts in our minds at once. And I think developing that muscle is tremendously important. And I think number two, taking on questions like that allows us to get down to our core principles and values, our first principles. And then once we get down to fundamentally why are we making the decisions we're making, we have a set of values and principles that we can apply across domains. These are our fallback positions for other decisions. 
They define who we want to be as a person, who we want to be as a country, you know, those kind of things. And so I think by asking those really difficult questions, you can figure out why are we fundamentally making the decisions we're making? Okay, well, now let's apply those consistently across the board is kind of my opinion on it. I quite like that. I think by allowing ourselves and everyone in the public domain to engage in careful, nuanced, attentive discussion about the most difficult things, allowing ourselves to reflect on them makes us all smarter and makes our society better. One of the things that troubles me a lot about the way sometimes when these discussions don't go well in the public domain is that people sometimes lose track of what in philosophy we have this principle called the principle of charity. <laughs> um, I know it well. Ah, good. Yes. Okay. So, what's meant here is, of course, you know, not donating money, although that's important too. This is the principle of sort of taking the opposing views in their best light and understanding exactly where they're coming from, and sometimes also called steel man, as it were, so in contrast to a straw man. So. The idea being that we read the best into, the best version of what the opposing side is that we're disagreeing with. And I think this gets often so lost. I mean, maybe it's, maybe public discussion, public discourse has always been like this, or maybe it's, you know, a product of the Twitter and soundbite age where everything is in increasingly small snippets. But it bothers me a great deal when, when we see discussions happening where people just don't seem to be truly taking on board the other point of view in this charitable and respectful way, really. People sometimes assume that the people they disagree with are, are stupid in some way, which is rarely the case, rarely the case. And much better discussion and dialogue and indeed progress, I think, will happen if people can be, have a more charitable understanding of what the counterpoint is saying and treat their interlocutors as if they're just as smart, if not smarter, than they are. And I think that's that's a much better way. I mean, that's, that's really in philosophy. That's how I think we ideally do it too. And I think if that methodology could sort of seep into public discourse and just any kind of dialogue, that, that can be really fruitful, I think. I love that line of thinking. You know, the idea of still manning for me is putting your interlocutor's point in a way that they would agree with or in a way they'd say man i wish i said it that yes, way exactly. you know yes. uh, you know charlie munger has a great quote about not commenting it on an opinion unless i know the other side as well as mine i think that that is key for sure and i also take your point that there's a time and a place for this type of discussion and there are some issues that you may choose not to engage into but i think in the philosophic tradition is to sit in these difficult conversations, allow for peers that completely and fundamentally disagree with you to throw their best arguments at you. And you have to defend your position in a way that prioritizes progress and understanding. I think that is such a beautiful sentiment from philosophy. So I pulled a quote that pairs very well with this conversation we're having from Plato. And what I want you to do, Gwen, is interpret this quote for me. I want you to tell us what Plato's trying to teach us here. And if you want to go so far, you can tell us whether you agree with Plato. I think it'll be self-evident whether or not I agree with him. But the quote is, a society will not be happy until rulers become philosophers or philosophers become rulers. What's the lesson there? Well, I just, I just love this. So this is from Plato's Republic. And I feel like I should say, so I'm also not a Plato's scholar, 
However, <laughs> I'm certainly not either, but it doesn't stop me from giving an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot going on in the Republic, and there are a lot of different ways to interpret what he's saying here in the larger context. And and I think that's important to acknowledge. I think it's important to mention because Plato says a lot of stuff in the Republic that's just really should not be taken into reality and made real. <laughs> Whether or not this is one of those things, I'm not so sure. So, I mean, I think that I think the sort of nugget that's worth extracting from it is that the best leaders are thoughtful and intelligent. It's hard to disagree with that one. That I think is, is what Plato has, at least in part, in mind by that. What Plato says that what what Plato really means, I think, in the in the context there and so at this point, Plato has this sort of idealized idea of the philosopher. And so the philo philosophers here are people who are extremely wise. And not only do they know what virtue is, but they also themselves are virtuous. And so these are, to Plato, the ideal leaders, people who are extremely wise, who love the truth and hate the false. I think that's what he says. So you think there's some sanctimony in that quote? Well, <laughs> yeah. It's certainly not reflective of what actual philosophers are like in general. I think even Socrates was not perfectly wise and perfectly virtuous. Even Plato's Socrates was none of those things. So They're human, yeah. That's right. So I don't really know who Plato had in mind, specifically as he's talking about these ideal, ideal, perfectly wise and perfectly virtuous philosophers, although it's a common trope in ancient philosophy. But the, but the sentiment is wonderful. And I think, you know, the, the best leaders are those who are wise and thoughtful, care about what's true, hate what's false, and are themselves virtuous and so care about what's just and what's fair, and are also compassionate and thoughtful and courageous and so on. And to be sure, it seems like that would make a wonderful person, let alone a wonderful leader. Now, within the context of the Republic, it's also Plato's me. I, well, I don't know if I should like Go into go into that. I can say more if you want. <laughs> it's it's up to you. I I am certainly my thought is not as deep as yours. I didn't go in and read the Republic, but I think the sentiment that for a society to be happy, leaders must become philosophers, I think is totally true. I couldn't agree with it more. And for me it's all those things you mentioned, in addition to the willingness to take on complexity. When I sat down to prepare for this, and you mentioned the, the beautiful conversations essay I wrote, I realized what I really was writing, I'm encouraging the reader to act like a philosopher. I think that's pretty clear. And so I think, yes, for society to be happy, leaders must take on complexity. They must take on the most difficult questions from the most intelligent opponents, like you mentioned earlier. And they must also prioritize truth, like you said, prioritize understanding and curiosity. So they must become philosophers. And I think that's something we're probably missing. So without a doubt, I think that's a, a beautiful quote. And I'm glad I came across it preparing for this because it's not one that I really thought much about or even knew much about before this. Yeah, uh, perhaps I'll say this other thing, which I think you might like. So in the Republic, Plato is describing what he thinks is the ideal just state. But it's also an analogy to what he thinks is the ideal or just soul or mind. And so all along, there's this parallel between the organization of the just state and the organization of the virtuous or just mind. And in both cases, what we have is, of course, philosophy at the top, 
sort of ruling and organizing and keeping together the other parts. So in order for the whole to be happy, for the state to be happy, it's ruled by philosophy. And likewise, for the mind or the soul to be happy, it's ruled by reason. So that's, of course, not to deny these other parts of our mind, the appetitive part, the irascible part, these other parts of the soul that Plato acknowledges. But the point is that our reason and our rationality sort of run the show and organize these other parts of ourselves. And that's what it is to be flourishing as a human being, to be the best version of ourselves, is to have this harmonious picture of the different parts of ourselves working all together, just like the organization of the just state is to have sort of it's ruled in the best way by reason, as it were, by the philosophers, analogous to reason in the mind. And it sort of keeps together all of these other parts flourishing in their best way. So that's the happy state. So it's really, this is the sort of the deeper message. So some people say that Plato doesn't mean any of this stuff that he says about the just state seriously. He's really talking about flourishing as a human being. And it's, it's sort of just this fun analogy with a just state. Either way, the, the message is, is a lovely one, sort of includes being our best selves, includes being reflective and thoughtful. Can you imagine if we had a group of leaders that acted like philosophers? I mean, I'm sure if I sat down and think about it, I could come up with a lot of negatives also. But from a general operating procedure, kind of standard operating procedure, if we had at least some inclination of philosopher thought, I, I think we'd be headed in the right direction. So anyway, all right, last question here. We'll wrap it up here. I was wondering what an inordinate amount of time spent thinking about philosophy does for an individual. So I want to ask you a personal question to end this conversation. How has philosophy affected you personally? And you can take it any direction you want, your mentality, your life, your decisions. How has philosophy affected you? It's a wonderful question. It, in a way, it's hard to separate it. I mean, it is my life now. This is It's my full-time job to sit around and think about philosophy, I guess, plus do some other things. But it's mostly, it's hard to separate it. I think, although perhaps the first way that, you know, how has, how has it affected my life? I guess it's made me even weirder than I was before, maybe. <laughs> but no, I'm, st I'm struggling to answer it in a sort of concise way. Um, I certainly feel very lucky in that I get to devote my full-time job more or less to the life of the mind and answering these questions and teaching and sharing this with other people and spreading it. In ancient philosophy, so in ancient Greece, there was much more emphasis on walking the walk and sort of living the virtuous life as well as studying it. And philosophers were sort of, you know, sort of a big objection to you as a philosopher if you were not, you know, living a wonderful, flourishing life and being virtuous, if that sort of showed that your theories weren't any good, or at least this is how some people look at it. And people don't really think about it that way anymore. It's not really an objection to a philosophical view if you're... Wasn't that a great knock on Seneca? That he was like extremely wealthy yeah. and he <laughs> did some things that... Yeah, no, it's, it's it, I think so. I think it's hardly the... I mean, I don't think there's any evidence that any actual ancient philosophers sort of... Was not human. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, totally. sorry, I, I shouldn't have, I should have <laughs> jumped in there, but well, let me just ask in another way. So net positive, net negative? You think it's a net oh, positive? It's a total, it's a total positive. Well, maybe the danger of being a philosopher is that you really you overthink everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yeah, you're. I think you're. I think you're really a philosopher, Clay. I think that's what. All we're right, I'm going to come work for you. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not giving a very like like 
soundbite answer. It doesn't have to be a pithy answer. It's a difficult question. And in fairness, I didn't send you this question ahead of time. But I just am curious because, like I say, I do think often about the way my mind works. Is it a net positive to be thinking this? And so I'm going, here's someone who lives it. And, you know, how has it affected you? I have a colleague, actually, who likes to who likes to point out to other philosophers when their own lives embody the questions that they study. And one of my one of my wonderful colleagues, Vidi Yao, studies grace. And so he thinks, and I think this is unquestionably true of her. She's full of grace. And my colleague who said this, he thinks it's true of me too, but I don't know. I study achievement, so it's very generous of him to think that. <laughs> so I suppose, maybe, I certainly do take very seriously this sort of Aristotelian theory of value that I that I draw from, that the, the best kind of life is one in which we develop and exercise our core capacities. And I think about it all the time, very much the way you've, you've talked about yourself and how you live, I guess, ever since, you know, even before I became a philosopher, I was very you know, sort of interested in sort of being the best that I could be and learning more about human nature. And um, I guess that's what, what brought me here. <laughs> But but I think, to be sure, I, I continue to do that. And I will often think about aspects of my life that I'm not doing as well at that I could. How can I be a better friend, especially? That's something I reflect on a lot. And, you know, how can I attend to the other people in my life and cultivate their virtue as I cultivate mine? So very much putting into practice these ideas. That said, I believe there's another philosopher out there who has done a sort of study about are moral philosophers more ethical than other people, or at least other philosophers aren't moral philosophers? And the answer was no. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Really? See, I'm interested because- Maybe we think we are, but we are not. (laughs) We we don't need to extend this, but I think about like, we talked before about Peter Singer and we brought his shallow pond discussion into some other discussions about- giving and i think about bob thurman and this is expanding your circle of compassion and I, how could you think about those topics constantly and not act on them it would be i would think it goes hand in hand yeah you you think i mean i i think the a way to explain the data in this experiment is to say that well moral philosophers are it's not that we're you know immoral people we're just so much more attuned to our failings than perhaps other people. I just read a book that we had talked about before, written by Michael Schur, called How to Be Perfect, which is a book on moral philosophy and a comic prose. But I loved one of the thought experiments he takes. He takes on the trolley problem and all these different thought experiments. But my favorite one, because it is like my life philosophy, is whether or not you should take the grocery cart back to the front of the store. <laughs> and I literally started laughing because I tell my girls, in everything in life, you take the grocery cart back to the front of the store. And so, like, I think about those things and he goes deep. I mean, a whole chapter on <laughs> why it's important. Should you leave it at your bumper? Should you put it in the cart that's in the actually out in there? Or should you take it back to the front of the store? And I'm just like adamant. You take that cart back to the front of the store. And in every decision in life, ask myself, am I taking the cart back to the front of the store? No or yes. I, you know, so my, I was laughing out loud, but I love this like philosophical ex, you know, explanation and exploration of whether or not that's important and why it's important. And actually, I think he missed it. He was talking about because it helps others, this, that, and the other. I think it was, he didn't mention internal. It's like for me, that's internal. Why you take the cart back to the front of the store is because how you do anything is how you do everything, in my opinion. And that's why you do it. Whereas he was focused on 
because it helps out the person who has kind of a crummy job to go get them. Well, and because it leaves it at the front for the next person. But we're getting way into the weeds. But I, I love that stuff. I love thinking about that stuff. And, you know, even though, like I mentioned earlier, I think sometimes it may give me great anxiety because I didn't take the cart back on a certain situation. But Oh, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, I just have to thank you. I don't think you're weird at all. I think I think you're awesome. And I appreciate you coming and doing this. Thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed this so much. Uh, really, it's I think you're truly a philosopher at heart, Clay. This is really just a wonderful discussion. Oh, no.